day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Stephanie Woolridge, who is doing a PhD in clinical psychology under the supervision of Dr. Christopher Bowie. Welcome to Grad Chat, Stephanie. Hi, thank you. It's so nice to be on here. Excellent, excellent. Now, Stephanie is also one of our Vanier Scholars, uh, so congratulations on that. How do you feel about getting the scholarship and what it can do for you and your research? It's, It's been incredible. I've felt so honored and so excited to have received it. It feels a bit surreal still looking back (laughs) on it. It's been a couple months since I've since I've received it, but it still feels crazy to think about. It makes a huge difference for my research and for myself. As graduate students, I feel like people face a lot of financial barriers. There's some stress associated with that. um, And having funding for our work can mitigate so many of those stressors. And with the support of something like the Vanier, there's more freedom to focus on my research, including expanding my research on a larger scale, disseminating my findings more broadly, and continue to develop this program of research. So I feel incredibly fortunate that I can continue to do the research that I love and that I've had the opportunities that that put me in this position. Yes, you're right. You know, funding is always that thing, and we would love to be able to find more funding for Mm. our grad student but those that you have got something like the Vanier as you Mm. said it it provides more opportunity for you just to do that focus which is great Mm. so you know as a clinical psychology student you are doing both research and clinical practice so how do those two things influence each other in your own training Yeah, so as part of the program, we're doing research pretty consistently. And in addition to that, we have six clinical placements that we do throughout the master's and the PhD. And these can be assessment placements and also therapy placements. So we have our primary research areas, um, and then there's this opportunity to engage in clinical practice in areas outside of our own. So it's this opportunity to get a lot more breadth in the populations we see, the people that we get to work with, but they also tend to feed back into each other. Um, So sometimes the clinical work that we're doing, we might be working with a new population that we've never seen in our research, um, and then that can really feed back into the research. Um, So they really supplement each other in, in, in a lot of different ways. And especially for my dissertation, which which I can talk about in a bit, um, my clinical work and research really went hand in hand. Um, and actually, because I did each of those things, it led to the development of that dissertation and that project. So it's a very fun program to be in where you get really both sides, the best of both worlds, so to speak, where you have this research and then you get to do this, you know, work with real people in the community. It's it's a lot of work to do, which is why the numbers in the clinical psychology program are a lot smaller than, say, a, a main mm-hmm. research-based program. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of work that you have to do, not just for your research, but for your clinical placements. And so with your clinical placements, are they within Kingston or are they further afield? 
So mine have all been within Kingston. There are a couple opportunities in places like Toronto as well for students who want to travel, but I've, I've been within Kingston. Um, so places at any of the major hospitals, so Providence Care, KGH, Hotel Dieu, the forensic system, there's several placements, and then in different community-based organizations as well, there's opportunities for supervisors to take on clinical practicum students. I remember actually one time going to a clinical placement, I guess, and I was one of the subjects. So I, I, it was a sleep, a sleeping one for sleeping oh, disorders because yeah. <laughs> I am really bad at trying to sleep. So I thought, oh, let's go along and see if I can mm-hmm. get me any tips and tricks. And I know there was a couple of our students that were there as part of that program. So mm-hmm. it was always good to see our students out there. A bit scary and go, oh, hi, I'm Colette. But there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's always interesting working with students, but I always tell people if they're a little bit concerned about it, that, you know, these are the people who are probably the freshest from school and have yes. been and are on it. And so there's there's some solace to take in that too. <laughs> and you know what? You've all got to learn somewhere, right? Yeah, so you true. might as well learn from people already in, in the business. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should go on to some of your research that mm-hmm. you've done. And you mentioned that you were broadly focusing on improving outcomes following early episode psychosis. So before we go any further, what is psychosis and what do you mean by early episode psychosis? Maybe that'll give people a bit of an idea. Absolutely. So psychosis is a word used to describe conditions that affect the brain in a way that changes the way a person might think or feel, leading to a disruption or a loss of connection with reality. So there's not a definitive answer on what causes psychosis, but it's generally understood to be related to genetic or biological factors, Um, could be things like substance misuse or other major stressors. Right. And... What I mean by early psychosis really refers to the fact that the onset of psychosis most commonly occurs in the age range of 14 to 35 years old, even more commonly between 16 to 25 in that age range. Yeah, it's it's quite a cruel age of onset. There's a lot going on in people's lives at this point in time. And onset can be sudden or, or gradual. There might be changes in a person's ability to interact socially or think clearly. And these can be really hard to identify. And it can be hard to distinguish, like I was saying, from other behavior changes that happen for young people at this age, people who are in high school or going to college or university or entering the workforce. Mm. There's a lot going on at this point in people's lives. Um, anyways. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's interesting because there's a whole lot of talk going on right now about students' mental health. Mm -hmm. And I guess some of this falls under that realm of little triggers that come along. Some that you said might be genetics. And I'm assuming when you're saying genetics, things like schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and diseases or symptoms. I'm not sure what the terminology to call those. Yeah, exactly. No, so things like... A lot of mental illnesses have that underlying hereditary or genetic component. Um, Schizophrenia is one that's understood to have a pretty substantial genetic component as well. So those can can run in families or you might be predisposed to some of those illnesses, depending on all the other things that happen to you in your life. Right, right. And then, of course, the... The challenges of university or college, as you mentioned, can just put that extra stress on people. Or, and I think I've read somewhere here, sometimes there can be post-traumatic stress disorders. I mean, PTSD isn't just 
looking at what happens with our defence forces who go into horrible areas Mm -hmm. to sort of help make sure that we're okay. It can happen in day-to-day life as well. So those sorts of things. Exactly. And, you know, of course, everyone is different and the way that stress affects us all is different. And there's a lot of life factors that can contribute to mental health risk and and trauma or abuse or chronic life stress are are huge ones in that area. And so when people talk about depression, and I'm going a bit away, and we will get onto your work in a minute. We talk about depression, it could be postpartum depression, it could be depression in general, it could be depression Mm -hmm. as a student who uh, Mm -hmm. suddenly really everything's just on top of them, and they just can't cope. And you talked about psychosis being living in a different reality so is it a way of of the body saying I've had enough I've got to shut things off and therefore go into another way to try and cope it's it's hard to say honestly there are so many components that that come together in the onset of psychosis I think absolutely it could be a response to a major stressor substances are a big piece of that can act as this sort of oh you mean like cannabis now it's exactly okay Yeah, so cannabis is a big one too. And then all these things sort of interact and can lead to an onset of psychosis. And by loss of touch of reality, it could be something more subtle, it could be something more overt, Um, it could be anything from being less responsive to others, having a lack of interest or energy in doing things, believing things that don't make sense or that are against evidence, hearing or seeing things that aren't there, being more untrusting towards people than you generally are. All of those factors can kind of tie in and that exists on a spectrum too. Right. Okay. So after Googling the term psychosis and Mm -hmm. with your explanation, there seems to be a lot of factors to consider. And in fact, that you looked at some of this before in your master's work where you looked at improving diagnostic accuracy in early psychosis Mm -hmm. where you say differentiating the neuropsychological profiles of cannabis induced in primary psychotic disorders can you tell us the difference between neuropsychological profiles of cannabis induced and primary psychotic disorders and what you found or deduced from that study even though I know it was only a master's so it was only a couple of years Yes, it was a little shorter than I would have liked. (laughs) But basically, with Canada's legalization of cannabis, there was a lot more interest in this area. And cannabis has been shown to increase risk of psychosis in people with genetic vulnerability. And there's a lot of kind of evidence that cannabis can lead to this development of a time-limited substance-induced psychotic episode in which symptoms are largely caused by cannabis and can remit following a period of abstinence from cannabis. Okay. So that's one reason why someone might experience psychosis. But as I said before, there are there are a lot of them. It could be related to an underlying schizophrenia spectrum disorder, another mental illness, that sort of thing. So really ruling this out and figuring out what's going on was the purpose of my master's thesis. And differentiating between cannabis-induced and maybe a primary psychotic disorder like schizophrenia can be a really lengthy diagnostic process. When people are presenting to, let's say, an early psychosis intervention program, these two different things can look very, very similar. Symptoms might look the same. People without a substance-induced disorder might also still be using cannabis. That's, it's very common. So it can be really unclear what caused what, and therefore, what's the best way to treat those things? Right. Because they would have different uh, mechanisms of treatment. So 
really, we haven't had a good way to differentiate between these two diagnoses. And surprisingly, despite the fact that in disorders like schizophrenia, there's a ton of research that looks at neuropsychological impairments, things like cognitive impairments, deficits in eye movement, so as indicative of more kind of underlying neurological functioning, um, and patterns of speech, which again is also neurological in nature. So people haven't used these core tasks that have deficits in schizophrenia as a way to parse these two illnesses apart. And really what we would expect is that for schizophrenia, which is a chronic condition that often has years of development before people might have an episode of psychosis, that impairment starts early. And for substance-induced psychosis, that impairment would be much more related with the onset of psychosis, which would occur with cannabis use. Does right. that make sense? Yes. So, so if I'm understanding something like schizophrenia, it could take a long time before yeah. you actually get some symptoms of psychosis, whereas mm-hmm. cannabis, depending, I guess, what kind of cannabis you have, it can yeah. be in, almost instant. Right. And therefore, if we looked a little closer at some of those neurological signs, we might be able to parse these illnesses apart. So that's what I wanted to look at for my master's thesis. So we had people in the lab who used cannabis, but who had been in treatment for some time. And we had a good idea of whether or not this was cannabis induced or whether or not this was indicative of something like schizophrenia. Right, right. And so what we found is that relative to people with primary psychosis or schizophrenia, people with cannabis induced psychosis had better performance kind of across the board on a lot of these tasks. Um, There was faster reaction time on some of those eye movement tasks. People had more ocular motor control. There was better pre-morbid adjustment. So people were doing better in different domains of their life if they had a substance-induced disorder. They had a higher degree of insight into their illness. And then there was some differences, too, on the coherence of speech, which was assessed using a computer program doing analysis on people's speech. Right. So really what we saw was that people with a primary psychotic disorder had more neuropsychological deficits than people with an induced disorder. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you did, I mean, that was, you tried to get a lot of that out within two years, but that's not the direction you've gone in your PhD, although Mm. you're still looking at psychosis, but in a different area altogether. So why why did you flip topics, so to speak? (laughs) No, for sure. Yeah, so um, we're still continuing our cannabis work, but as you mentioned, it's not the focus of my dissertation. So my dissertation is still focused in my main area, which is improving treatment outcomes uh, in early psychosis. But as you said, it's in a completely different (laughs) different spot. So I kind of alluded to this earlier when I was talking about my clinical work. So in a lot of my my previous clinical work and also in some research I did in my undergrad, I've been really interested in sex research. And in my clinical work, I was doing sex, sex therapy with the psychology clinic at Queen's. And I've been really interested in this type of research and this area of clinical practice for a lot of years. But my main research has always been in something different. So my supervisor and I, when coming up with my dissertation, were sitting there kind of thinking, okay, how can we merge my these interests that I have? I'm really interested in social relationships, romantic relationships, sexual relationships, kind 
kind of those aspects of intimacy and interpersonal relationships. But I'm also really interested in outcomes in early psychosis. So we had this idea to merge the two of them for my dissertation and really look at those aspects of relationships for people with early psychosis. So when, when I think about um, like intimacy or sexual relation difficulties mm-hmm. and things, I don't always think about depression or psychosis. Mm-hmm. So, so where does that bit come in? Sometimes just, it just ain't working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Really, people experiencing psychosis identify intimate, romantic relationships, um, social relationships, friendships as so important to their well-being, mm-hmm. quality of life, and recovery. And and I imagine people with depression also feel similarly. You know, social relationships are so important mm-hmm. to all of us in our day-to-day lives. And people with severe mental illness are no different in that in that regard. But because the illness occurs at such a damaging time, you know, 16 to 25. Right. That's really when people are starting to kind of navigate those relationships in their personal lives. There's a lot right. of there's a lot of awkwardness, there's a lot of mistakes that people make and experiences um, that people have that shape the, the trajectory of their personal relationships. Well, I can I can still remember in high school <laughs> where your friends are going, "I thought he loved me." You know, exactly. and they're just, they're just devastated for weeks until they find that and then until they hook up with another boyfriend. <laughs> You're right. In, in that age group, there's a lot of things going on of trying to figure out who you are and where you want to be. Exactly. And for people who experience psychosis, who might be in and out of hospital in this time, who might be in and out of treatment, who might have some some pretty impairing symptoms of psychosis, they don't get to experience sometimes the same degree of, you know, experimentation and right. building those relationships and attachments at this point in their lives. And therefore, when they might feel, feel ready to do that, it might be a little bit later than their peers. Um, there might be a lot of anxiety around it, a lot of stigma, a lot of self-stigma for people with mental illness that can really affect people's ability to have the skills and mastery and confidence to then go on and form these relationships that are still so important to them. So how do you fix that? <laughs> or how I do you fix the same question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I had the exact same question. And so it was really built off, you know, all the research I had done in the past in, in areas of cognition and social cognition and other clinical symptoms in psychosis. And what I wanted to do was understand, you know, what about the illness is preventing people from building these relationships? Mm-hmm. How does this relate to stigma from either the stigma that we hold towards ourselves or the stigma that, you know, potential friends or partners might feel towards someone with a with a mental illness yeah and so I really wanted to explore you know what what is going on (laughs) so it's interesting I mean you've used the word stigma a couple of times Mm -hmm. now and and I think that's it's one of those words particularly around mental health yeah is being used a lot Mm -hmm. and rightly so because it wasn't until the last I'd say five ten years that people even started talking about mental health in a way that it's okay to talk about it uh, you know bell let's talk day all those sorts of things but I guess the question is here why is intimacy and sexuality such an important area of study for this age group and you have answered some of that but how do you navigate the fact that you are researching two areas that are both 
highly stigmatized and taboo topics, so psychosis and sexuality. So you've got a double whammy yeah. here. <laughs> it's not just one or the other. You're, you're looking at both, which if you think about it, if, you know, one plus one equals two, which is mm-hmm. double double the hardship of that particular person is going through. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of your question is is why I'm researching it is because it's so stigmatizing and people aren't talking about it as much. And it's for a lot of reasons that there's not a lot of research in this area. And anecdotally, the people that I've worked with in early psychosis programs have talked about this piece and how important it is to them um, to have a social network, friends, family, relationships, and how it is a goal for their recovery. Right. Of course, things like having symptom remission and improvements in that area are very important to people. But even with those improvements, people are still experiencing barriers in forming these relationships for all the all the reasons that, that I've mentioned. And, you know, there's a ton of reasons why this might be, and part of my dissertation is figuring those out. But a lot of people get uncomfortable talking about sexuality and intimacy. There's more layers of stigma and self-stigma for people with mental illness. Um, It's difficult to bring up to your doctor. Uh, It's difficult sometimes for the doctor to bring up with their clients. That's right. It can get pretty personal. And for that reason, I think it's so important. So so what about, talked about the early onset thing this Mm -hmm. particular age group and so we've got these two areas that are can be quite traumatic for that particular individual but there's another layer there that I would like to bring forward as cultural differences Mm -hmm. now you talked about some things are taboo even talk about right some of that's a cultural difference so how do you pull out what's what a stigma and what's a taboo uh, you know, what is your population that you're looking at? Because you might have had an age range, but in the age range, there's going to be all sorts of other variables that you need to consider in your study. Yeah. And since this area is so underdeveloped, there isn't a lot for me to go off of in the previous research on how to answer those types of questions. Because obviously, if you take a group of 16 to 25 year olds, they're going to be so different uh, Mm -hmm. across the board. So it's hard to pick a specific direction to take my research in or to come up with a specific hypothesis, which leads to a lot of my questions being a bit more broad. And a lot of my work kind of laying the foundation in this area. But one thing that I think hopefully we'll get at what you're asking is my plan to include more more qualitative research in my design. So since there is so little on this topic, rather than me trying to assume things or make guesses about people's experience and how they're actually feeling about where they are in their lives in areas of intimacy or sexuality, um, I think it's more effective to to talk to people directly and hear people's lived experiences. And not only does this allow people with lived experience with psychosis to shape the trajectory of my research, it also allows people's voices to be heard as we build this area in the field moving forward. And by looking at the themes and the content that is coming directly from these young people, it can give us a really good idea of how to seek out information and develop the most appropriate and accurate interventions moving forward that fit the population that that I'm looking at. So how are you getting the people in your study to put the hand up and say, I'm happy to talk to you? <laughs> it's It's tough. So I'm still in the process of 
building my recruitment strategy, but we have really fantastic connections with the Early Psychosis Program in Ontario, the Early Psychosis Intervention Ontario Network. And historically, we've gotten really good turnout for research. And it's always a thing that people wonder about with any research about sexuality Mm -hmm. is, you know, who's doing, who's participating in this? (laughs) But it's funny because if you look into the research, people tend to be quite keen to talk about this area of their lives. They're not asked it very often. They're thinking about it a lot. So having that opportunity for someone to say, okay, tell me what's going on with you here. People report generally positive experiences following these types of questions. So of course, participation in any research study can be daunting, but looking at, you know, how this type of research has gone in the past, people do typically enjoy talking about it and sharing their experiences and feeling heard in this area that they don't get to talk about all that often. With these connections that you have, I'm assuming one connection is the university itself or or not, or do you try and keep away from asking people within the university, particularly as it's one of those topics that you said is some people are a bit uncomfortable talking about. But would you look at the university grouping as well? Because I think because the age group is so much a university or college level Mm -hmm. that it would be great to look at that population. Yeah, we typically recruit from early psychosis intervention programs. So those are more community based. Um, But absolutely, people at the universities and colleges in town are in those programs too. So we're not not recruiting, I guess, from from this population, but typically it's people who are already accessing care and who are seeing the team in these early psychosis programs who then get sort of passed on or referred to our our research studies. Yeah, because I can imagine another group too that would be really interesting to look at would be like the cadets and things at RMC mm-hmm. here in Kingston, because they have other things going on. I mean, there's there's some of them are studying, but they're learning how mm-hmm. to defend our country. And sometimes they might be taken on one of the trips overseas, which puts them in danger themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's that coming into and how and when they come back, how are they when they come back, which is, I guess, the PTSD sort of thing comes in. So, again, that would be another great area which I'm sure the defense forces would love to hear a little bit more about down the track if if you could pull some of those things out you've got lots of different groups that you could look at haven't you yeah that's part of it is that there's so many ideas and so many directions to take this sort of research because it is so applicable you know it's experiences that a lot of people have and even if someone doesn't have a psychosis these are experiences that everyone can kind of relate to is the, the you know, the right. development of these relationships and building kind of social support networks. Um, but absolutely, I think there's so many populations I would love to expand this work to. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the first thing is, as you said, you've got to build a model first that you can mm-hmm. work with and then go, okay, so at this particular time, we're going to look at this group in more depth and then this group, et cetera. Or let's just do a general across the board and just see what, what comes out from that Exactly. And it would be so nice for my dissertation to serve as this sort of foundation that I could then continue to build this program of research for, because it is something that 
I'm really passionate about and that I find so fascinating. It sounds like it's more than just a PhD. <laughs> ideally, that would be the case. I mean, the case. I, yeah, ideally, it's something I can continue to pursue in you know a future academic career and explore this area in a lot more depth and Ideally, you know, after this sort of foundational research is done, there's that opportunity for potential interventions. So once we've really got a sense of what is going on for people at this time in their lives, Mm -hmm. then it's how can we translate this knowledge into some actionable things that early psychosis clinics can use to help promote better outcomes for their patients. Do you see yourself down the track staying in the research or doing a bit of both, being the clinical psychologist and and then still doing this on the side? I think the good thing about clinical psychology is both options are Mm -hmm. out there, of course. And I think a lot of people want to pursue this 50-50 scientist practitioner model where people are, are doing some research, some clinical work. For me, the research is is really what I'm passionate about. So I would maybe be a little heavier on the research side of things, but I also very much like this sort of treatment-focused research, where as part of that research, you get to develop treatments, you get to provide those treatments to clinics. Right. And that's a lot of what my current lab, the Cognition and Psychological Disorders Lab here at Queen's, is really focused on doing, is developing those treatments and then implementing them more locally within our lab and then more broadly within Ontario, Canada, and internationally. And so that kind of model is something that I really strive towards. And I guess too, when you if you do come up with some sort of model that can be used in these psychosis clinics, which I'm assuming then as a lab, you will keep tabs on how that is going and whether something needs tweaking or something new is is showing up in those clinics. So do those clinics report back to you at, at, at any stage? Yeah, and that's how we've historically done it in the past is whenever we've developed a treatment that we've then rolled out to different sites, there's trainings, there's things like fidelity calls, updates where we talk about how these treatments are going, what some of the barriers that different sites are having to implementing these treatments, and we troubleshoot in that way. Because of course, every location and clinic is different, and they have different resources and staff available. So we really try to make it work so that the treatment is widely applicable and accessible to all these different sites, but also still staying true to what the research says is going to be the most effective for people. Right, because everyone is an individual, as we know, Mm -hmm. so not one treatment works for everybody, which makes things a little harder. So I I just want to go into a couple of other things that you do, because as usual, as a grad student, you're doing an awful lot of stuff in your own research, but you also somehow find time to do other things. which always amazes me Um, and we always say you know the busiest people you can give more work to and they can still get it done so I noticed you're like a co-director of the clinical psychology outreach program here at Queen's So, so what's all that about what do you do there Yeah, so the Clinical Psychology Outreach Program, um, also called CPOP, was started by uh, clinical psychology students um, several years back. Um, And then myself and another PhD student, Chelsea Wood-Ross, are the current co-directors of the program. So the program is based in Queens in our 
clinical psychology program. But what we do is we provide workshops and mental wellness information to the broader Kingston community. Right, so right. we have two two pillars. One of them is is really more community based. So we've worked with the medical school at Queens, public health, other different local organizations to provide workshops for anyone in the Kingston community. We've like parents or seniors or specific groups. And then we've also worked with the school boards to provide in-school workshops pre-COVID for <laughs> uh, high school students. And those are really focused on mental wellness, things like sleep and study habits and relaxation and all those other factors that contribute to mental well-being overall. So we, we do a lot of workshops, which have all been <laughs> remote on Zoom for the past two years or so, <laughs> and, and really try to disseminate this evidence-based information and concrete skills to the community. I love I love the fact that you're doing community outreach because we've got to mm-hmm. do more within our own community. So so that's awesome. And I'm also really interested in the fact that you're going into the high schools mm-hmm. because there's a lot we can teach or alert or make aware to our high school students before they get to university yeah. or college or go out into into the business world of different behaviors and things that they may need to either curtail or or change slightly to fit into society a lot better so I'm glad you're doing some of those mental health things of how they can cope themselves do you also knowing that your background do you also look at talk to them on the sexuality side of things you know of of our relationships and things and what makes a good relationship. I haven't talked about sexuality per se, but we have done sort of modules on healthy communication, which ties into communication within friendships and relationships. And then also to some extent communication with sexual romantic partners. And fortunately we have a lot of different labs that focus on sexuality, um, Mm. sex and gender here at Queen's, which means we have a lot of other graduate students who are also experts in that area. So really CPOP, we function because of our graduate student volunteers. So Chelsea and I are are directing, but really the program would be not at all what it is without all the other graduate students who are there. And I think it's great that you're all like I said, even though you're all so busy yourself with your own work and doing your own clinical placements, that you're also doing this volunteer thing to help the community. So mm-hmm. kudos to all of you. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. There's no shortage of opportunities by the looks of it. No, there's there's always work to be done. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily that we've got you all. So, you know, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I wish you all the best with your research. It's a big project, as I say to most of our students, something that can keep you busy for a very, very long time. So good luck with that and uh, getting your doctoral degree at the end of your time. And then, <laughs> then whatever happens next. Yes. Thank you so much. It's It's been such a pleasure to talk about it. That's good. And, and maybe you can come back at some stage and see how you're going. I figured a few more things out along the way because there's lots to figure out there, I'm sure. But you, you, exactly. you're clearly heading in the right direction, even thinking about the topic. So thank you. Thanks so much. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.